0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Symphonic Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite, and with me, as always, is Andrew Owen. Hello. Um, so before we begin, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit of uh, business. Um, we uh, have now 14 subscribers, so we have four Whoa. more than last week. It's, <laughs> get, it's growing, it's growing slowly. Um, so for those of you that are uh, listening on on uh, iTunes, we recommend, if you can, to check out our video um podcast on YouTube, uh, just search for "Symphony Podcast on YouTube, because we put a lot of um, images in there, and we actually put some music too, so if you know how to read music, you can check it out too. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, it's all good, we don't hate you, we love you anyways, um, and I mean, that's how I listen to podcasts anyways, I listen it when I'm driving, or... Walking yeah, video or
1: podcasts aren't as useful when you're driving. That's true. <laughs> Not that um, it stops many of us, I mean... We- <laughs> they say a quarter of people are on Facebook on their, as they're driving. I just think that's wonderful. <laughs> yep. All right. Death and destruction.
0: So today we're going to be talking about Vaughn Williams, and more specifically his symphony number five. Um, so uh, I always have problems with his last name. Because it's written, I mean, me as a Spanish speaker, when I see his name, I want to say Vaughn Williams or something, mm. and I know it's Vaughn Williams. See,
1: uh-huh. we English speakers have the most trouble with his first name. Ra- Ralph? Rafe. Rafe. Rafe? Rafe. That's how, how we pronounce it. Rafe <laughs> Vaughn Williams. Funny. Rafe Vaughan Williams. Vaughn
0: Williams. Um, so, uh, one interesting thing about his music is that he's described as human. Whatever that means. I mean, that's what I've been reading this week. Is that he's described as human? He
1: was one of our first human composers. Prior to him, we had had only cyborgs. non-human composers. bunch you know, of cyborgs and cyborgs, and just it's complicated. But it, <laughs> we we have the doctor to thank for for solving all of these problems. Yeah. One thing that I I think what he why
0: he's missing is described as human is because. Um, He's trying to connect with the English, uh, his English heritage. Uh, he's trying to go back to sixteenth century English music as well as uh, using folk songs, folk songs and stuff like that. Uh, one thing that I always listen, I, I always think of when I hear Vaughan Williams is for some reason is Celtic music. And every time I hear Celtic music, for some reason I I think of Vaughan Williams. Mm. The, those two are connected in my in my mind. Of course, that's my personal opinion, but it's just it's just something that I always. For some reason here, just sounds like home. <laughs> just pleasant. It's very pleasant. Okay, so um, Vaughan Williams was oh, our introduction, quick introduction. He was one of the leaders uh, with Holst and other English composers of 20th, of the twentieth century century revival of English music. Uh, thanks to Edward Elgar, uh, Vaughan Williams was interested in the revival of sixteenth century English composers, and he also collected English uh, folk song, folk songs. He served from 1914 to 1918 in the war, and although he was way over the military age, um, uh, he still served. And after the war, he was active in every phase of English music um, as composer and conductor, especially of choral festivals.
1: Sure, I mean Vaughan Williams was a um, before Elgar and after Purcell. You Not know, a whole lot going on in England in True. terms of music, so he's one of the people that helped to revive uh, the English musical tradition. Uh, so, so Von Williams's music is, is very particular to him. It's 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 individual. It's it's a kind of... Uh, when you hear Von Williams's music, you know it's Von Williams. Yeah. There's just something very yes. b- very distinct about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those things that makes it distinct is that Von Williams frequently uses uh, what are called modal harmonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically when we have music, it's either major or minor. Von Williams uses... Uh, some scales that aren't major or minor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: just something's a little changed. But it's something that's uh, native to to folk music, something that we expect to see in uh, in a lot of the music of of, of, folk, of English folk music for sure. So you see that a lot in his um, in his uh, music for orchestra and for other genres, other ensembles. Uh, there's some French influence from Ravel and Debussy. Definitely. Uh, We cannot deny that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just sort of, he, he, like many composers, is just synthesizing his uh, experience around him. He wrote for almost every genre. He wrote operas, symphonies. He wrote choral works, both easy and hard choral works. uh, Choral works for professional large ensembles and choral works for amateur ensembles. Uh, He wrote lots of things for neglected instruments, like the harmonica or the tuba or the pipes. Mm -hmm. And by pipes, I suppose, I mean, that's what it's called in the piece, but... Uh, those things tend to be things like penny whistles and recorders. I, know, I mean, English-sounding instruments like pipes. You mm-hmm. just hear it and go, "Oh, that sounds awfully Celtic, doesn't it?" <laughs> even though the Celts and the Angles are, are not even that related. They're just they happen to be sharing an island. Mm-hmm. Um, so his belief was that the composer should, quote, make his art an expression of the whole life of the community, unquote. So even though he has this emphasis on music being a communal thing, on it being really accessible, he is a very distinct composer. He is an individual composer. Yeah. Um,
0: one thing that um, when we're... Well, uh, if you want to know more about uh, Ravel and Debussy, go back to our second episode, which we talk a lot about impressionism, French impressionism, and... Um, so um, his operas uh, have not so far held a stage, except for uh, *Writers of the Sea* is the only one that is mm, performed regularly. Uh, his nine symphonies range from the Choral Sea Symphony, which uses um, Whitman's text, and the pic- picturesque London Symphony, to the programmatic Antarctica. Symphonies, symphonies four, five, and six, and nine, uh, use a wide range of orchestral color colors, as well as uh, his large-scale choral works such as *Santa Civitas*. Uh, the basis of his work is melody, uh, rhythm sometimes being clear and obvious, but his vision and quality, is broad humanity, um, uh, as heard in the ballet job, and as well as the 5th and, and ninth symphonies. Um, its appeal at several levels make it a remarkable expression of the natural spirit in music, just as the man himself personified all that was best in the liberal 19th century tradition. Yeah, that that mask
1: is wonderful. Job, oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sancta Civitas too. All these works. I mean, that's the thing about von Williams is it's always just beautiful. But yeah, Re- Regardless definitely. of how genius one mm-hmm. might think this composer is, he writes beautiful music. Yeah. Um, uh,
0: so his his life. We're gonna talk about three periods of his life. So we're gonna start with his early his
1: early years. Sure. Um, this is uh, when he was very very young. He did have. And a pretty average upper middle class education, very conventional. Uh, There was a lot of music education involved in this part of his life. Uh, He he played violin and charterhouse school orchestra. Um, He began to compose very, very young at the age of six, and he continued until the day he died. He never retired from composing. Just uh, kept on going. In 1890, unconventionally, he went directly to the Royal College of Music as a composition student. He studied with uh, Hubert Perry, a very important composer of England of the English choral tradition and of uh, non-choral music too. But he's, I think, Perry is best known for um, you know, for these big uh, works that you see at coronations and, and royal weddings still today. <laughs> uh, but this was a person uh, that. That von William studied with, and so two years later, in 1982, he entered Trinity College in Cambridge. This is uh, where he uh, worked with a history, uh, worked with uh, worked on a history degree for a B, a bachelor's of music degree. The education system in in England is is comparable to ours in the U.S., but a little different. But he he read, uh, he did a lot of uh, work studying, giving, doing weekly lessons at the Royal College of Music and studying composition with Charles Wood at Cambridge. Charles Wood being another one of the big head honchos of the English choral music tradition. I mean, I, 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 I do not go to very many um, Ang- Anglican services without hearing at least one Charles Wood piece every two or three services. Mm. He's just very important. In 1895 he re-entered the Royal College of Music as a pupil of Charles Villiers Stanford. Uh, Stanford is uh, another big, big wig. So this is a guy who studies with a whole lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only does he study with people, but he's friendly with people. He becomes friends with people like Gustav Holst, Mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, a very well-known composer and a very intellectual uh, composer, worked really hard to try and do things that were unlike what other composers were doing. Um... And so uh, in 1897, after his marriage with uh, Adeline Fisher, he went to Berlin where he had lessons and encouragement from Max Bruch, Bruch. Uh, which we talked about last
0: uh, podcast, we, uh, because uh, Respighi also studied with Bruch um, around the same time, right? Well, maybe a couple of years after Von Williams. Yeah, Von Williams has got a pedigree, man. He's, mm-hmm. He studied with everybody. Yeah. Um, and we'll see more influence in a little bit. But, um, more to so come. Spoiler alert. It's in France. Uh, Well, it's okay. (laughs) His compositions at the turn of the century were mainly chamber music, uh, but also he wrote some songs, uh, including the really famous Lyndon Lee of 1901, which I love. I really love that uh, choir setting. Lyndon Lee. Mm -hmm. He also edited uh, the welcome songs from the Purcell Society. Um, He wrote articles for periodicals and also contributed to the second edition in 1904 of Groove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians, uh, which is still... Uh, very much active today online, which is where we get a lot of our research, actually, uh, these days. Um, Also, in 1904, his Songs of Travel, which are settings of R.L. Stevenson, uh, were sung in London. Um, A significant event in 1902 uh, was his introduction by uh, Lucy Broadwood to the systematic collecting of folk songs. Um, uh, further motivation was given to this activity in December of 1903 when he heard Bushes and Briars, sung by an old shepherd in Essex. Uh, so he turned this, uh, this song, the Bushes and Briars, into a tenor-tenor bass bass setting, uh, TTBB setting, mm-hmm. uh, just male uh, choir. Um, during the next nine years, he collected tunes in Norfolk, Hertfordshire, Surrey, and Sussex, publishing many of them in various arrangements. Um, in 1904, he accepted an invitation to be music editor of a new hymn book called the English Hymnal, published in 1906. And this stuff has
1: lasted a long time. I mean, if, like any Protestant hymnal, and I mean, heck, I have a Methodist one right here. If you go to the back of this thing, you'll find Vaughn Williams' name and a bunch of hymns beside it. The guy <laughs> wrote lots of music for the hymn, for the Christian musical tradition, uh... We have that many. That's a lot. Uh, if if I were to guesstimate, probably about twenty hymns in here, mm-hmm. and, and the United Methodist hymnal are, uh, are Von Williams's work. <laughs> so the guy did a lot in, in terms of Christian hymnody. He was one of the one of the big champions of that in that period, for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so, oh, the second period. Well, we're gonna we're gonna move to the second period, sure. which is uh, his mature mature years.
1: Sure, as a, as a mature composer, he composed a little differently, though not too differently. I mean, we always want to separate things into periods, and yeah. uh, Von Williams is, is a little tougher to put into periods because his music is sort of, um, it's Vaughn Williams, it's, yes. even his early stuff is just as beautiful. Yeah. Um, but his principal work around the turn of the century was a short choral setting of Walt Whitman called Toward the Unknown Region, which was written in 1905. And although this was a success at the 1907 Leeds Festival, he was dissatisfied with the composition. Um, he's dissatisfied with uh, most of what he had written. And so he went to Paris uh, in, early in 1908 for three months of intensive study with Ravel. Great. Uh, this, relieves, this released a lot of his creative energies. He, he wanted to do new and interesting things. So he rapidly produced String Quartet Number no. 1 in G minor, 1908. Uh, the Houseman Song Cycle on Winlock Edge, a really well-known work for tenor, piano, and string quartet, uh, of which Gervais always gave the first performance in 1909. Uh, and incidental music for the 1909 Cambridge Greek play The Wasps. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same year, he completed a choral symphony, on which he had been at work since 1903, uh, as a C-symphony. Also to, a Whitney, also to a Whitman text, uh, Walt Whitman. It had enthusiastic reception at the 1910 Leeds Festival, and it established von Williams as in the front rank of English composers. He, these works were some of the things that just spring-forwarded him uh, to fame. His Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, for instance, is still one of his best-known pieces. It was written in 1910, right here in this period. Or Strings. This is a work for strings, uh, no, no brass, no piano, nothing hard, just mm-hmm. these nice soft little instruments. Uh, Fan- Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. This is still one of his best-known works. He followed this with five mystical songs, 1911, which, which I've sung um, in the chorus of this. It's a fantastic work for, mm-hmm. um, um, for choir, orchestra, and uh, a soloist, a baritone soloist, or a, or a low female soloist, I think, works with this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, But this is where we get the tune, come my way, my truth, my life, I don't know the words. but (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful music, stuff that you'd think would be folk music, but it isn't, he he wrote it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wrote a London symphony around this period as well. Uh, This work was performed in London in 1914, shortly thereafter. And so from 1910 to fourteen, he was also at work on a ballad opera set in Napoleonic days uh, called Hugh the Drover. Uh, This was completed in August 1914, uh, and after he finished that, he he shelved it as a composer. Uh, So, uh, Though in his 42nd year, he joined the army and spent most of his next four years in France. Mm -hmm. In 1919, uh,
0: Vaughan Williams joined the staff of the Royal College of Music, like you said. Well, he actually joined the staff. Um, And in 1921, he became conductor of the Bach Choir. Um, His experience as a choral conductor dated mainly from 1905, when he had become conductor of the Leith uh, Leith Hill Festival in Dorking near his family home. Um, His back performances, highly personal but artistically compelling, um, were the festival's major attraction until 1958. From 1922, he produced ambitious and enterprising works in several genres. Uh, These include a Pastoral Symphony um, written in 1922, the Mass in G minor uh, from 1921, uh, Floss Campi, a suite for Viola for solo viola, small chorus and orchestra from 1925, the Oratorio Sancta Civitas from 19, 1926, and a violin concerto written in 1925. Um, also, Hugh the Drover uh, from 1924 and the Falstaff Opera Sir John in Love in from 1921 were both produced in London. Uh, the Ballet uh, masque for dancing job uh, based on Williams, William Blake's illustrations was first performed as an orchestral work at Norwich in 1930 and reached the stage in London in 1931. The piano concerto was played by Harriet Cohen in, uh, in London um, in 1933 and in 1935 his Violent Fourth Symphony was introduced by Adrian Bolt at the BBC concert in London. Uh, a few weeks later, he was appointed uh, to the Order of Merit. Um, so the, the Fourth Symphony is really interesting because it's very 20th century. There's a lot of dissonance, and um, um, is nothing like the
1: Fifth Symphony. Sure. So the third period, we can call the final years, uh, if we want to put von Williams into periods, uh, he does have some degree of continuity. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. But in
1: the last 22 years of von Williams' life, he does not diminish any of his... Uh, compositional uh, work, he, he's always working. Uh, five more symphonies were written in this period. Mm-hmm. Number five, which was in 1943, number six in 47, number seven, uh, the Sinfonia Antartica, uh, 1952, an Antarctic Symphony, what a, what a thought. Number eight, uh, the Symphony number eight in 1955, and number nine in 1956, 1957. Uh, so five symphonies were written in this period. He also wrote his first film score in 1940, uh, which I, I've seen this film. It sounds he does he does really good work with mm-hmm. it. It's kind of fun to watch a film written by with a film score written by such an important composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote his second string quartet uh, in 1942 to 1944 thereabouts. Uh, he completed an opera, The Pilgrim's Progress, on which he had been working for many years. It premiered in Covent Garden in 1951, and he produced several choral works, notably. Hodier, uh, uh, 1954, and many smaller pieces. So, Von Williams drew his inspiration from many sources. Not only did he draw from folk song, uh, but he also drew from English 16th century music, as well as uh, French music around the turn of the 20th century, like of Ravel. Mm-hmm. You can hear all of these influences in his music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, a
0: lyrical melodic gift is at the heart of his works, uh, but besides modality, there is a greedy harmonic toughness, such as occurs in Job um, and the Fourth Symphony, which places him firmly in the 20th century. Um, His nationalist creed was that a composer must reach his fellow countrymen before he can hope to reach a universal audience. His symphonies, choral works, and songs are the core of his output, but the operas, particularly, particularly Writers of the Sea of 1937, contain fine music which overcomes the dramatic problems they pose. Uh, The nobility, integrity, and visionary qualities of the man are reflected in his music. Um, And most of what we talked about um, to this point uh, was written by Michael Kennedy in the Oxford Music Online. Um, So we're going to move to
1: his fifth symphony. Sure. This is the the work of the day. This is fun. So... The commanding landmark in this period is his Fifth Symphony, mm-hmm. which he writes from 38 to 43, and he revises it near the end of his life in 1951. Uh, he wrote it after some sustained work on the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, but apparently in the belief that the morality, uh, I mean he, he, he said that he would not, he did not think that the, uh, that the Pilgrim's Progress would, would be completed in his lifetime, so he went ahead and uh, finished this work. Uh, three principal themes and some subsidiary material are therefore borrowed, uh, but are treated independently with few, if any, programmatic overtones. Mm-hmm. Uh, making its affirmations in spite of the Fourth Symphony, uh, with which it is uh, in common only in its mastery of means, uh, the Fifth marks the climax of Vaughan Williams's traditional responses, his religious responses. Mm-hmm. So, like
0: the Pastoral Symphony, the Fifth has a number of associated works, uh, These include the five variants of Dives and Lazarus of 1939 for strings and harps, uh, which is perhaps perhaps the most personal of all the folk song compositions. Uh, the string quartet in A minor, um, written between 1942 and, 1940 and 1944, um, and also the concerto for oboe and strings from 1944, which was written for Goossens. Um uh, the concerto is at once capricious, lyrical, and nostalgic, and is the composer's most successful essay in the form. The, the A minor qui- quartet um, ends in D in the spirit of the Fifth Symphony, but the other movements, which are either agitated or joyless, make the dominant impression in this fine work. Here, and in some of the music of the war film uh, The Story of a Flemish Farm from 1943, are the first uh, definite Im- imit- Im- intimate, I'm sorry, Intimation. intimations uh, of the ferment that was to produce the Sixth Symphony. Uh, not that anyone anyone could have foreseen the Sixth, still
1: less the richness of the period that followed. But his principal wartime composition was the Fifth Symphony. Uh, this this work was something that that could easily be seen as some kind of escapism from. Uh, from the war mm-hmm. that was raging on at that time, uh, Wilfred Mellers wrote that, quote, music imbued with what one can only call greatness of soul, unquote, is what uh, this symphony comprises. It first played in 1943, uh, and a lot of people who heard it responded with a sense of deep gratitude Um uh, even for people who did not know that Vaughn Williams uh, was thinking about the war in particular, there was just something about the piece that that suggested uh, wartime uh, thinking. Yeah, um, especially um, like it, there is a
0: recording of the of the BBC Proms in YouTube, which I will put a link to. Um, and at the beginning, they're talking about it, and they they say that um, the this work is is like you said escapism because you know it's written during the time of war, so he's looking at, at uh, uh, England without conflict, you know, in the middle of all this turmoil. Uh, and it's, I love this piece as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written between 1938 and 1943, like you said. Um, uh, the style represents a shift away from the violent dissonance of the Fourth Symphony and a return to the more romantic style of the early Pastoral Symphony. It is also noteworthy that, as perhaps the that this is uh, the quietest symphony that he ever wrote. The quietest. Uh, <laughs> his own, uh, with only a few passages written uh, that even even get to a forte. Uh, the texture throughout the work is strongly dominated by the strings, um, which I think gives it that warmth. You know.
1: Mm. Well, a lot of the themes, a lot of the musical material from the Fifth Symphony is taken directly from *The Pilgrim's Progress*. I mean, he is not not worried about borrowing from himself at all. Uh, this opera, or Von Williams calls it a morality, uh, mm-hmm. this opera has been, had been in gestation for decades, and the composer had temporarily abandoned it, abandoned it about around the time the symphony was conceived. Uh, it's just one of those things that he had always wanted to write. He had mm-hmm. all these ideas in his head, and he finally put it down mm-hmm. pretty late in life. So, despite its origins, the symphony is without programmatic context, and it's in the form of an extended development of musical themes taken from the morality, rather than an attempt to cast it directly into a symphonic form. He's not trying to put something into a cookie cutter, he's just trying to mm-hmm. write music that develops on itself, a very romantic concept. So, uh,
0: a little bit about the background of this piece. Uh, when Von Williams started uh, writing his fifth symphony in 1938, he, um, like you said, he, was, he had been working on the Pilgrim's par- Progress for 30 years. Um, and by the 1940s, he had appeared to have abandoned the work completely and decided to incorporate incorporate some of the ideas and themes into other works. Um, most notably, of course, is this symphony. In January of 1940, 1943, von Williams arranged, arranged for two of his friends um, play through the newly completed uh, piano duet score of this symphony. Um, in later years, his widow, Ursula, Recall that he was now impressed. After uh, he was not impressed, not impressed. Uh, after hearing it, uh, causing him to doubt his new work. But after hearing the the first orchestral rehearsal by the London Philharmonic on twenty uh, fifth of May of that same year, he changed his mind. What he, a difference make. instruments make? Of course.
1: <laughs> maybe they was maybe they were just bad pianists. I mean, <laughs> you can't deny <laughs> it. I mean, it could happen.
0: I, mean. I mean, but it, the color is just
1: not the same. The texture is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, the music has to be intrinsically good. You can going to hide behind an orchestral color to make something good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, so Vaughan Williams dedicated his symphony here to Jean Sibelius, mm-hmm. uh, the great Finnish composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time, the, this composer was very fashionable among British composers. Arnold Bax and William Walton had already written symphonies of Sibelian influence, if you will. <laughs> uh, Arnold Bax is uh, a very well-known composer, and so was William Walton. Uh, I think I think Arnold Bax is probably a little underappreciated. I mean, you don't hear a whole lot of people talking about yeah. Mr. Bax, but mm-hmm. I mean, I have taken evenings and just listened, just on YouTube, of all of the, all of these symphonies and all these works. And they're all they're great, mm-hmm. good music that no one ever listens to. That's strange why nobody performs it. fantastic stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his work. I I know Bax more for his brother Clifford Bax, who uh, was a Theosophist. So that goes into into my study into music and the occult. Well. Uh, helped holst with the translation of a theosophical text. True. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the description uh, and the symphony originally read, dedicated without permission and with, sin- with the sincerest flattery to Jean Sibelius, whose great inf- example is worthy of all imitation, unquote. Uh, so when the work was published, it was shortened to read, dedicated without permission to Jean Sibelius, Just, <laughs> just shortened to those words. Uh, Sir Adrian Bolt subsequently secured permission, he says, Sibelius wrote, I heard Dr. Von Ray von Williams's new symphony in Stockholm under the excellent leadership of Malcolm Sargent. This symphony is a marvelous work. The, the dedication made me feel proud and grateful. I wonder if Dr. Williams has any idea of the pleasure he has given me. Unquote. is very sweet. Very kind. <laughs> Sibelius is sort of just, I guess, sort of a fatherly figure in the in turn of the century in um, orchestral music. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, first, the fifth symphony is
0: structured in fairly typically in a fairly typically four movement uh, form. The first movement um, is titled Preludio uh, Prelude. Um, and the first movement uh, lends itself to sonata form but does not display all its characteristics. The second subject has been derived from the first subject. So let me start really quick and let me just will you're gonna talk about Sonata super quick. Oh gosh. Um, what Anything
1: but sonata form. No,
0: but we'll do we'll do the Cliff Notes version because <laughs> I mean our 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 people the people that are listening to us that already know about music we don't have to say it. But this is more for those that don't know much about music. So sonata form um, is a form that is used a lot in symphonies. In uh, the most of the major composers and major works use sonata form. Sonata form is basically um, in the simplest sense is you go away and you come back that's the simplest form but it does so harmonically Mm -hmm. you go usually from one which we call tonic um to a different key uh be it five or three if you're in minor which is dominant or whatever um, and then you come back to one that's the the easiest way to 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 think about it but in between you have uh three main sections which are um, the exposition, the development, and the recap, the recapitulation, and these these sections, uh, like the the first and the third section, have usually two themes with a transition in between, and then the development is a way for, is when, where composers just go crazy and do all kinds of tricks and try to show off as much as they can. Um, so this uh, symphony, is there anything you want to say about Sonata?
1: Well, I mean the Sonata form, the best The best way I've ever heard it put is just that it is, like you said, it's it's starting home, and then you realize there's a problem, so Mm -hmm. you have to depart home Mm -hmm. and go through some kind of transformation so that when you come back home, everything's back to normal. Mm -hmm. You're a master of both worlds. Mm -hmm. It's very much like Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, Mm -hmm. all the best movies of the... And the best stories of, of humanity have all been around the idea of, yeah. of starting out with some flaw, leaving home to be fixed in some way and then come back. I mean, Star Wars does this, uh, yeah, of course. all kinds of fun things. Sonata does it with harmony. Uh-huh. Sonata form does it with just uh, the way the, the harmony is structured. Mm-hmm. Best way to put it. Yeah, uh, and something I forgot is just that the recap is always
0: in one, in the tonic, in one. It is um, home. Yeah, it's home, so the whole way. Um, so, it opens, of course, there's always exceptions composers go crazy with the thing so there's including fondly. of course there are always exceptions in music uh, you put you give them rules and they will break them um, but it's usually a like uh, more than more guidelines than anything else mm-hmm. um, um, so it this symphony opens with a pedal c um in the bass um answered by a horn call outlining a d major chord in a dotted rhythm uh, which implies mixolydian d uh, the violins, however, uh, use the notes of the pentatonic scale, uh, which we've talked about before, making the key ambiguous. Uh, Wilfred Mellers believes this is why Von Williams uh, built the movement as a, prelude, a preludio, uh, because it suggests an emergent state. Uh, the horn call motif fluctuates from major to minor, outli- outlining the tonal ambiguity, moving between mixolydian and, Dor- and Dorian mo- modes, uh, which becomes a characteristic of, the, of this movement. Uh, the basis C pedal becomes the tonic uh, when the key changes to either the Aeolian
1: or Dorian modes. So these are all fun words for, for modes. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> for people who are uninitiated into, into words like Mixolydian, Aeolian, Dorian, all, yeah. Ionian, mm-hmm. all these fun words, mm-hmm. uh, all, all that means is it's a, it's a scale that starts in a different place. Mm-hmm. Like if you were just playing the white notes on a piano, uh Mi da da And you just move it over one starting on D. Whatever it is, I can't do it well. I can't sing modes very easily. It's Dorian. Yeah. And so every you start you start this scale anywhere else on the on the keyboard and it all has its own name. Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, Locrian. And, uh, it's a lot of lot of fun. Where do these weird, crazy names come from? It comes know? from Greece, of course. It comes from the, <laughs> I mean, it, these, uh, the. modes used to be called that, uh, but uh, the church gave them these these assigned these names to them out of tradition. The, the people of uh, Ionia and the people of, um, uh, of the Doric people did not use the Dorian mode. It's, these are just names that were added on later on. But, <laughs> yeah, so Vaughan Williams is a modal composer a lot more than many other composers mm-hmm. are. So that's, that's, that's what we mean by Mixolydian and Dorian and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're just modes basically. Just modes, <laughs> just, modes. just oh, like oh, Mixolydian yeah. just has a certain... It's happy but it has a lowered 7th degree at the top.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, te, do, te, la, sol, fa, mi, re, do. It's, just, yeah. it's <laughs> kind of a fun little sound.
0: <laughs> um, so this modality uh, in this moment uh, then moves to E. Uh, with a new melody in the violins, which although um, does not include a sharpened seventh, it still outline, uh, outlines E major. Uh, the basses uh, now play pizzicato, um, which supports the melody both uh, melodically and harmonically, and the texture incorporates suspensions and passing notes, which makes the harmony richer. A sudden descent of a semitone. An idea previously used in Vaughan Williams' work uh, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, as well as Job, uh, marks a key change to three flats and also the development section.
1: The tempo accelerates to Allegro for the development, it's a little faster. Uh, The strings are used to imply the winds of nature in a similar vein to that of Sibelius. Uh, This this is punctuated by the brass and the woodwinds with a falling semitone motif, which gets larger intervocalically. Uh, um onto a major second and a minor third. Uh, this section is a canon, uh, or the polyphony of which Mellers uh, believes shows the randomness of nature. Uh, so the key shifts down mediants until it reaches D minor uh, when the strings imitate Sibelius again, this time using tremolo effects. Mm-hmm. And a canon really quickly
0: is, um, is basically a melody that um, is basically two melodies that are exactly the same
1: but are play, are displaced. Uh, Yeah, so, row, row, row your boat, gently down the stream, and then someone else comes in with the same exact thing, and mm -hmm. the way they play against each other is the genius of the melody. Mm -hmm. Um, um, For the recapitulation, um, the
0: tempo slows and the dynamics are reduced, once again. Uh, The C pedal is reintroduced, but this time in a more melodic fashion. There is a more development um, in the recapitulation, Um, there's more development in the recapitulation. The movement ends in a similar way to the opening with the horn call, but the key signature of two flats rather than one sharp is used. The basses descend to C
1: via E flat, uh, leaving the tonality of the movement still in question. Several of the musical themes in this movement are used in Pilgrim's Progress, in Act 1, Scene 1 of the work, particularly the opening dialogue between Pilgrim and Evangelist. Uh, a Dresden-Amen theme appears towards the close of this movement. Uh, Arnold Whittle argues that, quote, with respect to D major, the preludio might be regarded as a clear case of Schoenbergian schwebende tonalität, uh, or fluctuating, suspended, not yet decided tonality, sort of in and out of, of something recognizably mm-hmm. in a key. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: the next movement, which is a scherzo, um, w-
0: which we see in... In classical symphonies, especially after Beethoven, uh, scherzo is um, is it translates to a joke, uh, but it's usually a very happy kind of movement. Um, it's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so von Williams utilizes rhythm in the scherzo to convey different effects. Uh, the focus of the movement is centered on the rhythm rather than the ambiguous tonality of the preludio. Uh, uh, Lionel Pike points out that, at times, it seems more like a counterpoint of rhythms than of pitches. Uh, the movement begins with three dotted half notes in a fast 3-4 time, uh, then uh, half notes f- uh, for four
1: four bars, uh, which create hemiolas. One and a two and a one and two and three and one and <laughs> a two and a, It's just that little... just something where you have a... if you're in a, a triple time or a, if you're in a large triple time, a short triple time, then a large... Large duple time. Oh, it's really complicated. See, I thought hemiola was just where you take meat and you put it in a, uh, into a, a, a pasta and then you close the pasta around it and then put a meat sauce over it. But that's apparently ravioli. Uh, but no, hemiola is uh, it's, it's, it's weird. But it's just a rhythmic. Um, it's a way of confusing the rhythm a little bit, giving it a little interest. Yeah. Um, so, this gives the illusion that the music is accelerating,
0: um, and so the pulse does not settle. Uh, when the melodic line begins, the music is divided into five-bar phrases. Uh, a sense of stability is established when the theme is repeated by the viola and double bass in, uh, in, two bar, in stable two-bar phrases. Um, however, the violins enter with phrasing, uh, with a phrasing that does not conform to either pattern, thus adding more confusion. Uh, using this rhythmic phrasing, uh, the Dorian line is played on the violins, and the Aeolian uh, woodwind line are differently rhyth- different differentiated uh, rhythmically, as well as tonally. Uh, the rhythmical confusion is halted when the wind and strings alternate downward um, downward runs uh, antiphonally. <laughs>
1: a lot, lot of good musical dragon here, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's hard to talk about music without having some kind of language to, to describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next movement is Romanza. Let me give it these nice Italian names. It's romance. Uh, the primary theme here in this movement, uh, the primary themes are, are mainly from the opening of Act 1, Scene 2 of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the House Beautiful as well what this borrows from. So the opening English horn solo is taken virtually without change. Uh, the Pilgrim's lyric sung to this melody, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death uh, was originally used by Vaughan Williams as an inscription on this movement, while the contrasting agitated theme of the central section is taken from Pilgrim's lyric, Save me, save me, Lord, my burden is greater than I can bear. Um, so rising fourths again appear as a as a connecting agent among passages. Uh, the, the movement might well be considered the spiritual core of the symphony. Yeah, um, this movement begins with an English
0: horn solo, and English horn is kind of a, like an oboe, but it's, it's larger, and th- it's, its sound is mo- it's darker than an oboe. You know, we always make fun of oboes because they have this
1: strident sound. This yeah. b- so you get to enjoy that strident sound in a deeper. Yeah, deeper. Right. Re- <laughs> <laughs> so you, get to, you enjoy the horrible nasal oboe. <laughs> You move it down to a
0: lower and... That's exactly it. Right. That's exactly it. Well, it, is. it sounds It sounds dar- It sounds.
1: sounds better with the English horn, though. It does, <laughs> doesn't it? I hope <laughs> we don't have
0: any oboes in well, I
1: feel the same way about every instrument family, don't worry. The lower, the better, no matter what. <laughs> That's true. Of course, <laughs> we're bases. I mean, you know, you play a violin, this is really a natural thing. Uh, You have to hold weird and it's so high and just breaking your eardrum on one side of your head. uh, That's just (laughs) horrible. Whereas the cello is this big natural thing. You you just hold and relax and play. Uh, Every every time, every every situation, the lower instrument will be the more pleasurable. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll say it! I'm with you,
0: dude. We are both basses. I'm okay with that. Uh, Even though I play piccolo, so that's
1: crazy. Well, just, uh, uh, invest in a good pair of musician's earplugs, and you will be just fine on Pickle. Mm, yes, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, the last moment, which is
0: a uh, Pasacaglia, uh, which is, um, his, this is a, a great term because he's looking back. Just in this term you know that he's looking back somehow. People uh, don't use Passacalles so much anymore. Yeah, uh, so that was like in, in back times in the in the uh, Baroque we, we have a lot of pasacales and stuff like that and basically what it is is just a, a bass ostinato like we've said before. Ostinato is just a repeated
1: uh, figure. Um, and just repeat the bass line and it can be a very long bass line. da 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 Could go over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not necessarily the Pascaglia that I just sang. That's, <laughs> but it's a, a well-known bass, yeah. uh, ostinato same idea.
0: Um, and so, although this movement begins with the uh, rep- repetitive bass line char- characteristic of the Pascaglia, form, like we just said, uh, Vaughn Williams eventually abandons it. Um, the triumphant uh, primary melody of the Pascaglia is used as pilgrim's dialogue with interpreter in the second half of the house beautiful scene. Uh, while the fanfare motif recalls of... Uh, the Arming of the Pilgrim in Act 2, Scene 1. Uh, this ushers in a return of the themes from the first movement of the symphony, which are resolved into a quiet farewell, played by the woodwinds um, and then by the upper strings. Um, at the end of the fourth movement, a reference to von William's
1: hymn, uh, Sign Nomine. I think that's how we probably better pronounce pronounced it. Sign name. Nomine. Sign Nomine. You <laughs> uh, see the nomine, without a name, it's like mm-hmm. untitled. Yeah, so he quotes himself there in uh, in a hymn at the end. It's a, synonym, it's a <clears throat> For all the saints who from their labours rest mm-hmm.
0: So uh, the, the ending of this piece is incredible. It's incredible because it's seriously like like we heard on the on the, the YouTube videos is absence of absence of problems. It's just completely free of any problems. that uh, this is one of my favorite symphonies of all time. That's pretty. It's, it's especially because of that it's you know it's escapism and you're lost in this wonderful world trying to escape from the realities of life i guess <laughs> um anything else that's all i got all right cool um so if you want to email us um if you want to send us any questions or you have any concerns or anything just write us to symphonicpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com um, you can also find us in YouTube uh, just by searching uh, the Symphony Podcast. We have a playlist uh, going now, um, five episodes with this one included,
1: and we're also on iTunes. Um, and um, that's it for now. Yeah, and if you want to, if you're a listener and want to watch, uh, you can play a bar game and how many times I scratch my nose in the course of the podcast. Me too. Uh, it's, it's a <laughs> It's fun to do, uh, but yeah, yeah. We we have all kinds of fun features in the in the YouTube version of this too. Mm-hmm. So Andrew, yes, um, just
0: tell me. Have you li- have you been listening to anything lately that we can t- tell our audience? Maybe they'll they'll uh, they'll listen to some of the things well, we're sure, listening. Sure, why
1: not? Uh, so what I've been listening to this week a lot more than I have listened to much anything else is a uh, is Lully's Requiem. L L-U-L-L-Y, U uh, L L Y, his Requiem. The guy that. Died by piercing his foot uh, while conducting. Really sad story, but yeah, his this Requiem is just a wonderful, wonderful example of uh, not only good choral music but good symphonic. I mean, it's good string writing too. Just nice, thick, and resilient Baroque French music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it a good bit. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. How about you? I've been listening to, uh, for the first time, I've never listened
0: to this piece, but I listened about three days ago, for the first time, I listened to Gershwin's first piano concerto, and I've been listening to it on repeat <laughs> lately, because I really, really like it. I mean, it's jazz, it's so jazzy, of course, it's Gershwin, it's very jazzy, and um, the first moment especially, I really like, especially around the middle of the first moment, he goes into a lyrical session, and then he comes back to, with the with the main theme, and it's such a Incredible contrast. I love it. I really, really like it. So, that's our suggestions for
1: now. Sure. Sounds good. <laughs> I need to listen. I've never heard the Girls' concerto. cheer on myself. Really cool. So, thank you for listening. Thanks, sir.